This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. Dean Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Thank you very much for being here. Great to have you as always. With each passing day, it feels like my voice is uh, coming back to full steam, which is, for someone who does radio, uh, an exciting thing. It's weird when you can't speak for a few days and you speak for a living, so... It's nice to have gotten that. Uh, not complete. I'm not completely out of the woods on that, but it's a good bit, a good bit better than it was. Uh, also, those of you who called in last night, listened last night to the inaugural, the uh, first ever Buck Sexton with America Now in syndication. Thank you very much for for that. It was great. I had Team Buck lighting up the lines for the entire three hours of the show. I could have taken even more calls than I did. And it's just nice to know that when I say, hey, can you can you all have my back? You literally have my back. I mean, you're calling in, ready to just talk to me, wish me good luck, congrats, uh, help me get back on, on track with uh, a news story or want to share some of your insights. Uh, it really is a collaborative effort. So I, I appreciate that very much. It was a, an incredibly long day yesterday. I started at 5 o'clock in the morning. I finished at 9 o'clock at night. So... I did five, uh, well, yeah, five hours of radio and th- uh, three hours of TV plus a TV hit. So that's a long, that's a long day uh, for anybody. And it, as I say it out loud now, I think may- maybe I need to chill. Maybe that's a little too much. Uh, but thank you, all of you. And if you want to listen to the show, if you missed it, you can go to AmericaNowRadio.com. They can play the podcast there, uh, which is free and you can listen to the whole show. I'll be back tonight. I mean, the plan is to be back. Every night, 6 to 9 Eastern, and uh, you can listen on the iHeartRadio app. But really, the best place to go is AmericanNowRadio.com. It has everything right there. You can click Listen Live, and uh, or if you have happen to be in a place where you have a radio station, that's cool, too. Go for that. So, okay, some things to uh, hit on today. Uh, and phone lines are open, by the way, if you want to call in chat. You got any thoughts on what we should uh, hit today or any thoughts on... The show tonight, it's all just, it's all just now a continuous radio buckathon uh, with, with five hours of radio a day, um, but do call in 888-900-3393. So I wanted to spend some time on the latest Trump dust-up with the press. This is going to be, there's no way around this. It's going to be a lot of these going forward. There's just going to be people that decide that they hate Trump for whatever reason, and that's that's filtered into the media now, and that's what they believe. So you have this whole terrorist attack uh, feud that's happening, or, or a feud over terrorist attacks. Better way to put it. 
Trump said this about it. Can we play uh, when he says that terrorist attacks have gone unreported? Please uh, hit that. Shermont. It's gotten to a point where it's not even being reported. And in many cases, the very, very dishonest press doesn't want to report it. They have their reasons, and you understand that. All right. Now, this, of course, is leading to a a huge outcry in the of people who are saying we cover terrorist attacks wall to wall. We devote tremendous resources to covering terrorist attacks. And they're all very, very upset about this. I saw some particularly from uh, CNN, some other places where prominent journalists of one kind or another are upset about this. And you had Trump responding or the Trump team responding with the release of a list of 78 examples from September 2014 through December 2016. Terrorist attacks involving jihadists, and they have a whole list. And the White House says they're underreported. I have to say that I, I think it is, um, in, it is incorrect to say that they were underreported. I don't think that's an accurate description. What you can say is that the way the press reports on terrorist attacks is constantly influenced by their political biases. What you can say is that the way that the media, uh, particularly in the first 48 to 72 hours after a terror attack, the way that they respond to something as obvious as a guy saying, Allahu Akbar, I'm doing this for ISIS, and the target set matches up with what ISIS is going after, and the tactics, and ISIS claims responsibility through one of its quasi-official channels online. And then you'll see people who are paid a lot of money to bring information to the public. That's really their job. I know they think of their job as something else sometimes, like their job is um, is more a function of... Uh, trying to highlight their how awesome they are. I, I don't know. But the job is to bring information to the public. And they don't do a particularly good job of that when it comes to uh, terrorist attacks. You see, what we know, uh, what we know from all of this is that every time there's an attack, they want to pretend that a normal person can't come to a straightforward conclusion about what happened. You know, oh, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. And you'll hear this also in the context of, well, the FBI hasn't yet said it's a terrorist attack. The FBI hasn't yet declared that this is an act of terror. And I just always want to say whenever they do that, well, that's because the FBI is a law enforcement organization. Um, The FBI is in a position where it might have to prosecute people, even if the perpetrator is dead, they might have to bring a prosecution and they don't want to be in a position where they are um, tainting the case. You know, they, they don't want to be in a position where it could be said that they have taken a, a, a political stand or they've gotten ahead of the facts because they may be involved in an actual judicial prosecution or action or pro- prosecution of the terror act itself. So of course the FBI is going to be slower to say this kind of stuff, of course. And when you look at what's gone on 
with attacks, most notably the Pulse nightclub attack. And you have someone who is on tape saying, I'm doing this for ISIS. I'm acting in the name of ISIS. This is because of ISIS. You know, that's why I'm doing these things. Uh, with all of that going on, and they still play this game of, well, let's redact the transcripts. Let's find some way. Let's take some, um, you know, take some bizarre diversion from what is very obvious here. And they'll redact the transcript and they'll act like we can't all know what's going on here. This is why people don't trust the uh, didn't trust the Obama administration on this and have lost a lot of trust in the bureaucracy. Uh, have lost a lot of trust in the um, the way that these things are talked about this. Uh, the way that these things are talked about. Because if you can't trust the government to treat this as an act of terror uh, right away, and if you can't trust the media to be speaking about it as though it's an act of terror right away, uh, what is holding them back? There's this bizarre fear that they seem to have that if they were to get ahead of the facts in some capacity, if they were to um, push beyond what is provable in a court of law in the initial hours, that they would do some terrible disservice to the public. Meanwhile, you see when it comes to reporting on Trump connections to Russia, when you see the way that they are dealing with that, uh, there are corrections, there's innuendo, there's false reporting, fake news, all of it. But for some reason, and uh, we'll get into what those reasons are, whenever it comes to jihadism, there is this fake uh, pause. There's this, oh, we don't really know what's going on here. And I think everyone has had their fill of that. Uh, the, the government's not as bad about it, although they're pretty bad. But they have their reasons, at least on the law enforcement side, as the media. Uh, but so when Trump says that it's being underreported, I, I think that he's reacting to it. And anytime you're doing a Trump translation, there's the risk that you're really just bending over backwards to explain what may be inexplicable. And I understand that. But I see it as based on what Trump said. He's getting at the concerns that the way the media talks about this, um, the way the media describes these things. Um, shows that for some reason they are uh, unwilling to just be upfront and honest about it. And they play this, we can't know the motive, or let's not jump to conclusions about the motive. And after a few days of that game, which is very boring and unsettling, especially in the really obvious cases, but after a few days of that game, uh, then they'll say, okay, well, we figured out what the motive is, but we're not going to really report on it much. Then there is underreporting. Once it is clear, once, for example, Chattanooga, uh, another example of this, we said, oh, well, is it, was it really a jihadist terror attack? Uh, a guy who had radicalized in, within the Islamic faith went and, and shot up a Navy recruiting center with, uh, with an AR. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it's pretty clear that's a terror attack. Remember, they, they dragged their feet on that one. It was a shooting. I remember Obama spoke about it and referred to it as though it was a, a, a random school shooting, like nothing had happened and it was no big deal. Um, 
I'm sorry, when I say no big deal, not that it didn't matter, but just that it wasn't a national security risk. It was a school shooting or a, not a school shooting, but a, a shooting the way that a, a gangland shooting or uh, any sort of crazy school shooter going postal, th- that kind of situation, and not part of a broader ideology, an ideology that seeks to undermine and destroy us, which is why it is more dangerous and more potent and more worthy of concern than just some one-off thing that happened, and then we should turn around and all complain about gun control. So does the media report on terrorist attacks? Of course they do. But it's also important, I think, uh, to note that the way that they talk about terrorist attacks is uh, completely and utterly uh, influenced by their political position, which is that Islam has nothing to do with jihad or jihadism, that there's no link between the two, and that they, as social justice, I don't like to call them social justice warriors. We like to call them something else, uh, you know, social justice lunatics or something. As social justice concerned individuals, uh, they feel like Islam is a, even though it's the second largest religion in the world, it's a religion of non-white minorities and therefore, it deserves special consideration and protection in this country. Uh, I also think they view it as a counterweight to Christianity and Judeo-Christian tradition and culture in this country. And so they embrace, the, at a subliminal level, they embrace um, Islam in a way that they won't other religious traditions. And I have to say, I've also seen so much of this. Uh, we talk about appropriation all the time, or we don't talk about it, but... The left talks about it, and then I try to make fun of them for it. But there has been appropriation of minority struggles, particularly civil rights struggles, by some of these Islamic groups uh, in this country who act like they are this deeply oppressed under law minority. I would just, I just would find it insulting, especially if I was somebody who spent a lot of time being concerned about the uh, civil rights movement, past and present. I, I don't think that individuals complaining that there might be surveillance going on in a mosque where there's a credible terror threat is anywhere near the same thing as uh, people not having their full rights because of their ethnicity, their skin color. Uh, and it's it should be insulting, one would think, I would think, insulting to the real civil rights uh, struggle and heroes that so many of these care and these types of groups come out and say this stuff. I want to deal with the other argument, which you're going to see in the uh, in the days ahead, which is that the real terror threat is, of course, right-wing extremists. Peace on that, that you, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's so off the rails and crazy. But let me get back to it in a minute. 888-900-3393, team. I'll be back right after the break. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Thank you. 
This is the Buck Sexton Show. So this is amazing. There's a piece on Slate, and you, is this, can it really be, you know, it's, it's a piece on Slate that you'll see uh, from back in, where is it, um, November 30th of 2015, and it's the terrorists among us forgets, so this is an old piece, but the most dangerous religious extremists are migrants from North and South Carolina. Yeah, that's right. Christians from North and South Carolina are the most dangerous terrorists in the country. We seem to return to this discussion time and again and go over much of the, I don't mean we, I mean America. We go over much of the same territory. And you'll see some of the most dishonest constructions of, uh, or misconstructions, deconstructions of logic, of numbers, of knowledge. And... It's really amazing. Um, it's really amazing to see. Y- you have all of these uh, journalists who are trying to find some way to explain away the threat from radical Islam. And so what do they do? They say, well, if you take out 9-11, uh, here's, how, here's how the chart looks for violence on U.S. soil at the hands of uh, various extremists. If you take out 9-11, I just want to say... Well, if you take out the bombing of Pearl Harbor, our whole war with Japan doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And if you take out almost 3,000 Americans killed in one day and the impact that that's had on the way that we approach security and everything else that's going on in the war on terror around the world, well, then sure, it seems like a tremendous, it seems like an overreaction. It seems like we're... uh, not in the right frame of mind to deal with this. But when you do add that in and you understand that the whole purpose of many of our policies and actions is to prevent another 9-11, when you take that approach and then you recognize that there are so many of these attacks that are thwarted but are not, um, there, there are so many of these attacks that are thwarted but are not you know, non-existent, or rather there was a cell that wanted to engage in an attack but was stopped by the FBI, or you go down the list and uh, you say to yourself, okay, well, how many billions of dollars do we spend on this issue, and how many of these attacks have to be stopped by the FBI or some other uh, law enforcement agency in this country before we understand that just counting up the overall numbers, especially excluding 9-11, from those numbers is an exercise in distortion, an exercise, you could say, in, in underreporting or in misreporting. So this is going on still. You know, the Trump team is not adept at, uh, the Trump team is not adept when it comes to, oh, accuracy with the numbers. That's, that much has been established already. But on the underlying substance of many of these arguments, I have to say, I find that Trump is willing to say what many of us know and believe, but feel like we'll get in trouble if we say, and that has a tremendous appeal. It has a tremendous appeal today, and it, it did during the campaign, and it will continue, I believe, to have such an appeal. I mean, I'm going to bring on uh, Andy McCarthy here in a few minutes. We're going to talk about what's going on with the, uh, the ban But we've been told so many times by many of these individuals that 
the ban is um, not about security and it's not about anything other than anti-Muslim bias and the president has exceeded his authority. Uh, I got to say, the more I've read into the decision, uh, or not the decision, well, some of the court decisions so far, and looked at existing case law, this should be open and shut. This should not be a difficult uh, a difficult call for the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to make, but they may very well overrule the president on this one, and that would be a shot across the bow for the administration because it would mean that the judicial branch has more or less gone rogue and decided they're just going to be a policy counterweight to Trump. And that, if we're here already at this point in the administration, just imagine what happens in a few years. All right, team, we've got more coming back in a few. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Listening to the Buck Sexton Show. Team, we're joined now by our friend Andy McCarthy. He's a former US, uh, AUSA, Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Currently, he is uh, with National Review and he is a best selling author. He's a contributing editor at National Review. Andy, great to have you. Thanks for calling in. Buck, thanks so much. Uh, please tell everybody what's going on here with the whole ruckus over the. You got these decisions from different judges. It's going to go before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Can you just, as a process matter first, what is what is happening right now? Where are we today with the Trump executive order banning some immigration for some period of time? Well, basically, Buck, the district judge in San, uh, in Seattle issued a temporary restraining order, which the Trump administration tried to get stayed over the weekend by going to the appeals court that uh, Seattle is part of. The, Seattle is the Western District of Washington in, um, in federal terms, and they are part of the Ninth Circuit. So the government sought a stay of the judge's suspension of the travel ban uh, in the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit declined to impose an immediate stay but they did order immediate briefing. So both sides had to get uh, legal briefs into the court uh, by yesterday afternoon, by Monday afternoon. And today at about six o'clock Eastern time, uh, the Ninth Circuit is going to hear oral argument from the Justice Department and uh, the parties who, who brought the suit in the Seattle case, who are the states of Washington and Minnesota. So that will be argued before a three-judge panel uh, this afternoon. And uh, depending on how that goes, uh, either side, who, whichever side loses, would have a right to seek uh, what they call rehearing en banc, which means a hearing before, in most circuits, it's the entire court. But because the Ninth Circuit is so huge, uh, it has actually 29 um, active judges. Most circuits have something more in the area of 13, 14. Um, they have 11 member uh, panels that, that 
hear cases on bonk, meaning the, for the, on behalf of the whole court. Um, that's a very, very rare thing for uh, circuits to grant. They usually will go uh, with whatever the decision of the panel is. Um, if there is no request for rehearing on bonk or if rehearing on bonk is not ordered, uh, then whichever side of the case lost can try to appeal to the Supreme Court. So that would be the last step. I think that probably the other thing people find interesting today, uh, the three-judge panel, people want to know what is the makeup of it. Um, the There are judges appointed by three different uh, presidents, uh, a Carter appointee, an Obama appointee, and an appointee of uh, George W. Bush. So if you go by, you know, if you assume the uh, the judges work resembles the political proclivities of the of the president who put him on the bench, uh, then, you know, the the Trump administration could be in for a tough time in the Ninth Circuit today. How quickly will we know by the end of today, the oral arguments happen? How long is it before we know what the outcome of those oral arguments will be? Well, there's no law that requires a court to um, issue its decision uh, within a set period of time. But I would note that with with stuff like this, which is uh, you, they're basically asking the court to um, vacate a suspension that's been caused by a temporary injunction, which means uh, if we put aside the lawyerly gobbledygook, we're very, very early in the proceedings because a preliminary injunction has to be followed by a you know a permanent injunction or at least a hearing on it. Um, so very often these kinds of motions or these kinds of appeals are decided on the papers. They don't even have oral argument and a decision comes very quickly. I think the court probably granted oral argument because it's a, it's a case of, uh, important national interest. And there's real question, Buck, under the law about whether the court ought to be involved in this at all. So I think it would be, um, disrespectful to say the least, if the court were to uh, you know, dismiss the Justice Department's or the executive branch's concerns without even giving them uh, you know, oral argument and a, and a hearing. Yeah. Can, can, you, can we dive into that for one know, second, Andy? Because yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no I was, was going to ask you about the issue of standing for, the, for these two states. <laughs> All right, hold on. Uh, let me let me try this again. So, Andy, the, the the two states have brought this suit. How and they're claiming that by not allowing seven countries to have unrestricted travel to the United States under previous visa a previous visa visa regimen that they're gonna what their universities are going to be hurt and their tourism is going to be hurt. I mean, it seemed pretty flimsy the question of standing for these states to sue the federal government in the first place. Yeah, not just hurt, Buck, irreparably harmed. So they're going to be they're going to suffer. Minnesota and Washington state are going to suffer irreparable harm if for a period of four months, people from Somalia uh, are not allowed to come to the United States or, you know, classes of aliens uh, from that country. It's really, you know, it seems to be uh, to be a preposterous claim on its face. But the other thing that's interesting about it, Buck, is it's quite beside the point. Um, this is an area of the law where the court really doesn't have any role. Border security 
is the plenary responsibility in our system of government of the political branches that are accountable to the people whose lives are at stake. That has always been what the law is. And in this area, uh, I, I think what's happening is the law is being conflated with both uh, you know, policy arguments of people who don't like uh, Trump's moves here and people who dislike Trump personally. But if we just you know, ferret out what the law is here, because that's really what the only thing the court should be concerned about, Trump is acting at the highest pinnacle of his legal authority because he has all the authority of the chief executive who from the founding of our constitutional government has had supreme authority over the conduct of foreign affairs uh, and is constitutionally empowered to take action against potential foreign threats to the homeland. Plus he has all the authority that, that Congress can give him. Congress uh, is in our system given supreme authority over the qualifications of aliens to either enter or remain present in our country. And in this instance, they have enacted a clear, unambiguous statute, which in very sweeping terms allows the president to keep uh, aliens or classes of aliens from entering the United States. If in his judgment, which means not reviewable by the courts, uh, he believes letting them in would be detrimental uh, to American national security. So as a matter of law, it's it's really quite amazing that the court is even entertaining this action, much less that they've ruled in favor of the claimants. What do you make of the claim that this is about a, an establishment of religion? I've seen yeah, there's so many different uh, orders and justifications and uh, variations that are out there as to why what Trump did is is unconstitutional or illegal or the left has a lot there's when the, and there's so many different arguments i feel like well if it was clear wouldn't one argument be enough and wouldn't it be the same argument but i digress right. but what is is there an establishment of religion is, is there a first amendment argument for non-u.s citizens traveling into this country can't, can't the commander-in-chief say you know what we don't want people from any country we don't want people from any I mean, doesn't he have that ability we're not talking about citizens right he does uh, and, you know, this is the unfortunate part of the public debate here, Buck. And I, I guess this frustrates me more as a lawyer than uh, a commentator. But, uh, you know, people's policy preferences have, getting, have gotten bundled up with a discussion of what the law is. If we just stick with the law, um, the Constitution allows you to do all kinds of things that are stupid policy. So... You know, for all these people who are yelling, it's a religion test. Um, the Constitution mentions religion tests in only one context, and that is you can't have a religion test as a qualification for public office. But when you're talking about aliens who want to enter the United States, that has nothing to do with the religion test as it's discussed in the Constitution. And we can and, in fact, do have some religion tests in immigration law. For example, if you want to qualify as a refugee, it's incumbent on you in many instances to prove religious persecution because our experience, of course, uh, of the history of humankind is that religious persecution uh, is one of the most common forms of persecution and why people flee their homelands. So it's not even true to say, you know, we don't have religion tests in our law because we explicitly do. But as a matter of constitutional law, the president could say, 
uh, we're going to have a categorical ban on Muslims. Now, again, I, I hasten to say, because unfortunately in this atmosphere you have to, I think that would be really dumb policy. But as a matter of constitutional law, the president clearly would have authority to do that because aliens don't have any right to come to the country in the first place. So they don't have any, you know, reservoir of due process or or, uh, bill of rights protections that would be the grist for a complaint that they were being kept out on the basis of their religion. They they simply don't have that right. Uh, Again, I think it would be a dumb thing to do, but the Constitution would allow it. So it's simply frivolous for people to claim that there is a legal right against a, you know, a religious designation in immigration law. And now back here on planet Earth, we talk about the facts. And the fact of the matter is here, the countries and refugees that are involved, we're talking about less than 15 percent of the Muslim population of the world. And we're not talking again about a permanent ban. We're talking about a temporary ban which targets these particular seven countries And it's these seven because as a result of an Obama-era law, uh, these seven were cited as countries that are either designated by the State Department as state sponsors of terrorism in the case of Iran, or in the other six countries have dysfunctional or non-functional governments as, as a result of being hotbeds of jihadism and war ravaged. So, you know, to make it to make it simple for people, Uh, If we want to vet somebody who wants to come to our country, the capacity doesn't exist to pick up the phone and call Yemen and say, you know, what's this guy's criminal record? What's his personal history? You know, we have that capacity with other Muslim majority countries and their regimes. We don't have that with these seven countries. So what Trump is actually talking about is not a Muslim ban. It's a ban on countries or, or the aliens of countries where we have very, very significant vetting difficulties in terms of uh, trying to analyze aliens who want to come here to predict whether they're going to be a threat or value or value added once they get here. Can I just ask you real quick, Andy, before I let you go, what do you think the Ninth Circuit is going to do? You think you think they're going to keep the ban ban? I I think they'll probably rule against Trump. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think and this is quite apart from whether you think it's a, a good policy or a bad policy, uh, the law and the courts have become more like super legislatures than legal tribunals. So I, if, if they were strictly going to apply the law and they wanted to get off their chest what they thought of the policy, they would uphold what Trump did, and then they could write a you know write something snide about how stupid they think it is. But instead, what they do nowadays is politics rather than law, So I think the judges are likely, because the Ninth Circuit has a history of this, of substituting their own policy preferences for the president's, even though he's constitutionally responsible in this area. Andy McCarthy is a former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, best-selling author and contributing editor at National Review. Read his latest at nationalreview.com and follow him at Andrew McCarthy on Twitter. Andy, thank you so much for calling us today. Great to have you as always. My pleasure, Buck. Thank you. Uh, Team, we're going to hit a break. We'll be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show. The Blaze Radio Network.
Mike Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Well, here's a surprise to me, at least. Uh, Trump thinks that Obama likes him. Play the clip, please. It's a very strange phenomenon. We get along. I don't know if he'll admit this, but he likes me. How do you know he likes you? I like him because I can feel it. (laughs) I like him because I can feel it. Oh, man. I, you know, it would be a great thing to go through life uh, with just a completely unbridled, a completely unparalleled confidence in oneself. Uh, But it would really only work if you also happen to inherit a whole lot of money. Um, Because then you can get away with it. But it would be fun to go through life really thinking that uh, you are incredibly, incredibly awesome. And yeah, yeah, I like this. This is Trump saying he thinks Obama. Obama likes him. I've got to say, I find that to be highly unlikely um maybe on a on a person to person level they have been able to get along in some of their interactions but then again i don't know obama it's possible that he's less uh invested when it comes to dealing with individuals less invested in his politics than i would i would guess he is but that would that would be a surprise to me but it's really really what what <laughs> i just find noteworthy here is that uh, Trump just thinks that everybody, including Obama, likes him. I'm sure he thinks that Hillary really likes him. I guess Hillary was at his wedding, so there's that. And isn't it interesting that Hillary and Bill Clinton, for the right price, they'll even show up at your wedding. Uh, Hour two coming up to you. Much more. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Spreading freedom across the nation. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hut. Great to uh, have you here, as always. Appreciate you joining me and for our little midday freedom session in the Freedom Hut. I should come up with a different word, probably, but that seemed to work at the time. Uh, just a quick bit of breaking news for you. Betsy DeVos has been confirmed as education secretary, but it required a tie-breaking vote from Vice President Pence. Hey, the Vice, the Veep getting in on the action here to approve Trump's uh, polarizing cabinet pick, a woman whose crime against humanity is that she wants predominantly uh, poor and minority children to have a better shot at a decent education. Uh, that makes her a bad person, according to the left. So there you have it. We're joined now by our friend Vince uh, Colonese. He is the Daily Caller's editor-in-chief. Hey, what's up, Vince? Hey, how you doing, Buck? I'm good, man. I'm good. Thank you very much for, for joining us. Editor-in-chief? You were the executive editor, right? Did you, are you, was there a promotion? There was. that It happened concurrently to Tucker Carlson, the prior editor-in-chief taking on his new show at Fox News, Tucker Carlson Tonight, where he's been very successful, we're proud to say. And in so doing, he relinquished control of the company uh, to me. So I'm going to try my best not to let it descend into a, a, a Hindenburg. And I think nice, actually, it's, been dude. Good, 
It's gone good so far. I mean, January was the best month the Daily Callers ever had in terms of the number of interested readers visiting our website. So I, I, uh, I'm proud to say that everything's running smoothly here. Well, congrats on the on the promotion, sir. And uh, it's always good when a friend of the, a friend of the Freedom Hut moves on up in the world. We like that. Uh, we we, we like it when our we, we we like it when our people are running stuff. So, uh, all right, nice. <laughs> Keep that one in mind. So, Vince, you got a bunch of uh, great pieces up on dailycaller dot com right now. Uh, give me give me the rundown first on this piece. In their own words, anti Trump resistance leaders aim to make America ungovernable. That doesn't sound constructive. Yeah, I mean, Peter Son, who's just such an incredible reporter uh, for us, put together sort of a, a big wrap on uh, all of the anarchist groups, essentially, who've been involved in all of these anti-Trump protests since about when we began to see them really flare up on Inauguration Day. And their central contention is not that this is just simply a political movement or that they're trying to make a statement about Trump and about what his policy should be. And they will literally want to make the government that makes the country, quote, ungovernable, that, that, that chaos is rules the day rather than some sort of uh, principled stand. And of course, that's apparent every time we see protesters show up at these events uh, wearing, you know, black masks and and specifically breaking things, setting them on fire. The, the recent example, of course, at Berkeley, we saw uh, a conservative speaker's event shut down entirely because they were upset with it. Um, and you know, this this just keeps happening. You know, we at the Daily Caller, we actually asked the White House about this last week and said, you know, at this point, do you have any intention of investigating the, the people who keep fomenting riots at various conservative and anti-Trump events around the country, um, or conservative and pro-Trump events, rather, around the country that they show up to? And uh, White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer told the Daily Caller that the White House knows who they are and didn't and suggested that they didn't seem to need an investigation to establish that, but sort of moved on very quickly. Uh, we still have questions about that. I would love to know if the federal government has any intention, the Department of Justice specifically, of looking into people who are specifically out there with the stated intention of breaking law and hurting people and destru- destruction of property. I think that's worth looking at, especially given the last eight years when every single time any incident happened, it seemed like the Justice Department Civil Rights Division was jumping in to assess what had taken place. Um, I think it's worthwhile occasionally to wonder if the federal government shouldn't be looking more closely at these things. Of terror attacks that are considered underreported by the media, you have this piece up as well. Uh, what's your, we, we talked about this in the last hour a little bit. What's, what's your take on this? Well, you know, I think ultimately the White House's should be given some credit here for for a clever accomplishment, which is they basically, you know, the White House has been trying to make the case to the press since since day one that terrorism is a preeminent threat. And then the White House makes the claim that, hey, you know, the media just doesn't report on, on these things enough. Uh, President Trump did. And then the White House decided to release a list of 78 attacks that had happened in order to say, look, these are the attacks that haven't gotten, quote, adequate coverage from the press. And I, that's really, of course, open to interpretation what that means. Obviously, these attacks appeared in the press to some extent. But beyond that, maybe it involves like whether or not they were thoroughly vetted or thoroughly given an examination the way they should have been. I mean, how many times, of course, have you and I had conversations or thought about the way the press covered things to sort of minimize the role of radical Islam, for instance, in these various attacks? There's a lot of open interpretation of how you 
how you examine these things. But the Trump administration accomplished something, I think, which is pretty interesting, which is they convinced the press to run a giant list of so many attacks that have happened since 2014 to once again convey to the American public that terror is a real threat. And while the press is busy kind of crying about Trump lying or, or, or misinterpreting the facts, they're actually doing him a favor by presenting to the public further evidence that terrorism is a real threat to the country. Yeah, I have to say that the other pieces that I'm seeing now, the Washington Post had a headline up that I read this morning that these are the terror attacks that, that are not on the Trump list. It's like, well, okay, so there's even more. <laughs> and, right. and the fact that Trump seems to focus on attacks that hit either America or Europe, that, that doesn't make – that makes a lot of sense to people, right? I mean, it, to look at attacks – to ter- look at terror attacks in the context of a country like Somalia or Iraq or Yemen, which are in the midst of a civil war, that, that has a different uh, – that, that doesn't resonate quite as much in peaceful Western countries – uh, as attacks that are just out of nowhere, specifically against civilians, not in the middle of a war zone. And, and that, that shouldn't be such a difficult thing for the left to figure out. But the, the Post seems to be saying, oh, well, look at all these other attacks that he didn't talk about. So terrorism, depending on the day to me, Vince, it seems like terrorism is either much worse than we are willing to say it is, or it's not nearly as bad as we say it is. Right. And if you're if you're President Trump, and you're trying to make the case, for instance, that the refugee program is a vehicle through which bad actors can enter the United States. There's evidence internationally already that that's true. In France, the the attackers uh, came in through, in Paris, came in through uh, the Syrian refugee program by fraudulently running documents to pretend to be Syrian refugees. Now, does it mean that Syrian refugees themselves, genuine ones, are going to be terrorist threats? Not necessarily at all. But it does mean that programs like this exist and and have loopholes through which terrorists can enter. And I think that you know the Trump administration has trying been trying to strongly make that case that programs like this uh, can can be uh, a massive loophole when it comes to securing the United States. What do you think about the DeVos uh, the DeVos nomination and and vote that just happened? By the way, I just wanted to get your. Uh your take on how they, this nobody could have guessed that the woman who would seem as offensive as church lady from SNL was the one that galvanized the forces of the left. And they almost, they almost defeated a cabinet nominee uh, for the first time in 28 years, I think is, is what I saw this morning. Right. So Democrats, I think did score a couple successful blows on her and, and sort of succeeded in framing her as being, um, not quite in touch with the education system in the way that she should be, specifically public education. But I think the Trump administration and her, and her specifically in her testimony really had a compelling case, which is my whole reason for existence and the, the reason why I'm going to head the Department of Education is to minimize the federal government's role in these programs and, and instead to turn over control to states and localities, which doesn't tr- take a tremendous amount of understanding of the federal government's role to do other than to figure out ways to minimize it every time you encounter, encounter a question on it. So she was, you know, her her nomination today, her confirmation today, came with some high drama. Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins, both Republican senators, uh, who decided to oppose her, put the Senate and put the Trump administration in the precarious situation of having to have Mike Pence, the vice president, come and be the tie-breaking vote for the first time in history on a cabinet official. And he did that. He was joyful in, in so doing. It's funny to watch the video of him now. He's kind of smiling and laughing as he as he uh, finishes up the session. But speaking of session, Jeff Sessions, 
needed to stay in the Senate through today in order to make sure that that vote got done for Betsy DeVos. So now Jeff Sessions has done his job as a senator, and we should have uh, a, a Jeff Sessions confirmation for attorney general tomorrow now. So that'll, that, that'll be the next bit of news coming out. Uh, Shimon, do we have Representative Waters saying it's time to start talking about impeachment? Do we have that clip? Yeah, pl- pl- play this for a second. I want Vince's reaction to it. Let it rip. First of all, just let me say, these are not normal times. Uh, we have a president who has created chaos and division, so many questions about his conflict of interest, lies about whether or not he separated himself uh, from the businesses he claimed he would separate himself from, uh, not showing his tax returns, putting his arms around Putin, defending Putin, working with the Kremlin. Uh, I want to know, and a lot of people want to know, was there collusion? And some of that, I think, leads to the possibility of impeachment. And I think that's legitimate to say, given everything we know at this point. Here we have a member of the House of Representatives, longstanding member Maxine Waters, already getting that getting the impeachment talk going. Vince, I don't think this is the I don't think this is the last we'll hear of it. I think we're going to start to see more. No, for sure. And the Venn diagram that's supposed to exist in American politics, where Democrats and Republicans can agree on things, it continues to be pushed apart by people who are lighting their hair on fire way in advance of of any evidence that President Trump is going to be specifically bad for the Democrats' agenda. I mean. If you were to look at the stage of Republican candidates who existed during the Republican primary and to assess which of these guys is most likely to intersect with the Democrats on things, the answer to that question was and continues to be Donald Trump. Donald Trump, especially on infrastructure spending, a guy who wants to spend a trillion dollars on it, early on before he even took office, Chuck Schumer was beginning to signal that he could sort of get along with Trump on that. And now it seems like Democrats have just decided, you know what, we're just going to run an entire anti-Trump campaign. And part of the reason is it's not hard to see why. The ACLU raised record money by opposing Trump in his early days of the administration. And I think Democrats probably are probably sensing, hey, you know what? There's a real cash cow here if we can continue to persist against this Republican president. We just keep telling people that he sucks and we'll keep raising money off of it and then we'll figure it out later on. We won't worry about our, our ideals right now. Just one a quick prediction from you before we let you go, Vince. The Ninth Circuit is going to uphold the stay on Trump's executive order on immigration or is going to overturn it? Well, everything's such high drama that, you know, I, might, I, I don't want to make a prediction. I do, I do want to make a guess, uh, uh, a guess of the White House, though, which is if, they are, if the stay holds, if it's like, hey, you're just not allowed to do this, and they keep on pursuing appeals up, up the chain, of course, uh, will at any point the White House pursue Congress and say, hey, you need to pass a law on this. So let's just get past the legal questions associated with the executive order and get the Congress to actually act on it. Uh, I think that'd be wise. I mean, again, this is supposed to be a moratorium um, and on, on uh, immigration, and that is typically well within the bounds of what a president is capable of doing. President Obama did that. And, you know, if it means that the president has to recraft his executive order, maybe, then he should do that. But uh, beyond that, we'll see. There's, there's, the only guarantee is that more drama will occur. Vince Colonese is the Daily Caller's editor-in-chief. Woo! What's up, Vince? Congrats. Uh, you can read his <laughs> latest so at Daily Caller. <laughs> that's, that's the cheering section here on the radio. Uh, at the, you can read his latest on DailyCaller.com, and he's at the DC Vince on Twitter. Vince, great to have you. We'll talk to you soon. Come back, all right? But thanks so much. Thanks, brother. Uh, 
Sponsor this half hour is silencershop.com. There is no better place to go, period, for a silencer for your firearm than silencershop.com. Silencer makes the whole shooting experience more enjoyable. You'll have more fun out on the range, no matter where you're using your firearm. If you have a silencer on it, you're going to be happy that you do. And there's no place that is better at getting the paperwork process and getting you through all of that than silencershop.com. So do check them out. Uh, go to silencershop.com and read testimonials. You can learn about how you go through the process and you do the paperwork and then, bam, you can get yourself a silencer. Although I guess maybe it's not bam. It might be more like, like but I'm just, it's not that quiet. You'll have to hear. In movies, the way they have silencers is not the way it is in real life, but they're, they're still really cool. I fired them and uh, I think you should check them out. So go to silencershop.com. Again, silencershop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. Isn't quiet wonderful? We'll be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Sexton. Robert in Rhode Island, you are on the Buck Sexton Show. What's up, my friend? How's it going, Buck? There we go. It's good, man. How are you? Thanks for calling Hi. in. I know you've been on hold for a bit. I appreciate your patience. No problem. Uh, congratulations on a good show the other night. As Thank my you. Friend, my father would like to say, don't screw it up. <laughs> I'll do what I can. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> but... Uh, the reason why I was calling was, uh, you know, in the theme of this, uh, you know, the press, you know, picking and choosing, you know, subjects to report on and uh, thus, uh, you know, deem newsworthy and stuff. Has anyone done their homework as far as this year's New Year's Eve activities? And last year we were complaining about a, a massive number of uh, rapes and sexual assaults in Germany and other places, and I have not found anything anywhere uh, about that subject. You know, I'm going to give them a month to, to, you know, figure it out, but I've heard nothing. Have you heard anything? Um, no, I haven't. I haven't seen any reporting on it. I'm assuming that there weren't similar incidents, at least in the same scale as there were last year, those who would have heard about it, but uh, I, I don't know. I, I do know that in Europe, the reporting on refugees is always influenced, and they're they're constantly trying to shade it uh, in order to not make refugees look bad. So that's right. that's a concern right there. They're so they're not giving you the honest. Where the truth is relevant, right? Yeah, I mean, they they feel like the the facts will get in the way of the narrative that you know, diversity is their strength or whatever it may be. Um, I always think it's fascinating. Uh, Robert, thank you for calling in and for your kind words. Uh, Shields high, buddy. It, it's interesting that when you, when you start to look at how so many countries around the world are allowed to have very restrictive immigration policies, are allowed to openly, uh, as, a, as a matter of policy, defend their, you know, their culture or d- defend their nationalism or their patriotism. And no one really seems to care or to challenge it, at least not in the international community. But it's it's only America where any limitations that one begins to put on immigration 
uh, even very reasonable ones, automatically result in this slew of accusations about you know, racism and xenophobia and all the rest of it. Um, it's a unique burden, I suppose, that the American immigration system carries with regard to how the rest of the world sees it, that here we are uh, trying to make decisions that are in our national security interest, and there's this <clears throat> extra consideration that has to be factored into it all the time of, well, how does this look to everyone else? I, I do think that at some level, much of the Trump administration's uh, movements here, and the reason why it has the support that it does is because there's a rejection of that just out of hand. There is a rejection of we are going to make decisions about our borders and about immigration that other people will like. I just feel like we're, we're all sort of sick of that. And a lot, a lot of us are sick of that, that the, that there should be any international opinion influence on the way that we conduct our immigration policy. I want to say any influence, but obviously at some level you're going to be, you know, with your allies and, and foreign nations, you, you want to have a, a streamlined process. But there's a difference also even between visiting and between, uh, you know, between visas and visiting and, and working here for a period of time and becoming a full-blown U.S. citizen. So I just think that the discussion, what you're seeing here is a, an enormous chasm between those who believe that anyone who really wants to be American, even if they just want to come here and collect benefits, has a right to do that. But that falls apart when you apply even the most basic scrutiny to it. No way that that can be the policy. All right, we got more coming. Stay with me. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Team, we're joined now by Julie Kelly. She is a contributor at National Review. Julie, thank you so much for calling in. Thanks for having me, Buck. All right, so a top climate scientist blows the whistle on shoddy climate science. Tell us, give us the background. Tell us about this piece you've written on National Review. Sure, it's posted today online. Um, over the weekend, the Daily Mail posted an expose from a top, a former top uh, scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is one of the top federal agencies in charge of climate change, climate science. So he basically exposed this malfeasance and wrongdoing behind a really widely distributed, widely accepted study um, that refuted the pause in global warming between 1998 and 2012. And how did it, what happened here? I mean, what, 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 give us the so what? Sure. So here's uh, where the political agenda fits in. In 2013, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the international body that oversees all climate science and climate policy, um, in their 2013 report, they actually acknowledged this pause in the rise of global temperatures. Now, in, 20, in 2007, they said that every decade would see between a one to three degree Celsius increase in global temperatures, and that did not occur. And they had to admit that the rise in temperatures was 
about half of what they predicted and what essentially became a pause. So this counter contradicted everything that we've been told, right, that rising greenhouse gas emissions uh, would increase temperatures and we would have global warming and all this catastrophic climate change. So that report really set the climate change movement on its ears. And the problem was then in 2015, there was going to be the International Climate Change Conference in Paris that Barack Obama attended. So they really needed something to refute this pause in global temperature and the rise in global temperatures, because that was the whole reason for the conference. And so here comes uh, Tom Carl, who was a top scientist with uh, NOAA, and he tweaked data, really kind of made up this methodology about how to take um, temperatures from the sea surface. And uh, voila, all of a sudden, his study shows that there was not a hiatus or a pause in uh, global warming. So that report was issued a few months before the Paris conference. Uh, it was you know, covered by every major media outlet around the world. And so all the climate activists could breathe a sigh of relief that they had some kind of so-called evidence that showed that global warming was still occurring. This is amazing. Uh, people yeah. still cling, even though there's you don't see this in other areas of science where there's data manipulation. And and if you did do this, and let's say this was about uh, the pharmaceutical industry and there, there was biochemistry involved here and they were doing clinical trials and you had scientists that were changing, uh, changing the data, they could be held guilty of fraud. I mean, they could be held liable for fraud. They could be in trouble. But with climate science, whatever they do that brings it back to this is an imminent problem that has to be fixed, it seems to be a self-justifying excuse all the time. It does. And, you know, this is one of the many benefits of President Trump being elected because in 2015, after this report was released, the House Science Committee, led by Republican Lamar Smith, started demanding the data and documentation and communication that led to this report that kind of came out of nowhere so, of course, the agencies refused. Obama administration officials refused to give up the evidence. Um, and so he had to subpoena NOAA and the officials. Well, now, because we have a Republican administration, he's finally going to be able to uncover, if it hasn't been completely destroyed, um, exactly all the correspondence and communication around the creation of this report. Um, and so that's really where where this is headed now, except what the whistleblower uh, uh, released this weekend is that the computer that was used to generate this report, a surprise, surprise, suffered a complete failure and none of the data and evidence had been archived, which is standard procedure with science because you want it to be available for independent re review to see if it's reproducible. None of that is available. Um, so it looks shady, if not corrupt, uh, every way that you look at it. And hopefully Congress is going to be able to get to the bottom of really what happened. Oh, it's sort of like the IRS with the hard drives that mm -hmm. had to be destroyed right away. This is this is quite a coincidence that this is happening. Uh, Julia, I also want to ask you about uh, some of the other work that you do. And I know we brought you on to talk about your climate change piece, which is on nationalreview.com right now. Uh, but you are a leading voice in the debate about America's food system. I find food fascinating. What are you, you're a defender of American agriculture and biotechnological use? Talk to me about this. 
Well, this is how I have gotten into all this. I call myself an accidental activist. I've been covering these issues for about the past two and a half years. I've written extensively about food policy, particularly GMOs and the organic industry and agricultural biotechnology. And that's how this kind of led me to this climate change issue. Um, And I really covered a lot of the anti-GMO movement. So I can see some similarities between how science is manipulated and activists um, really try to mislead people about GMOs. I see some similarities, but the problem with the climate change activists is that there's far more reaching consequences, obviously, with what they're doing than, say, the anti-GMO movement. Um, but yes, I've written a lot about GMOs and um, and food policy, like the National School Lunch Program and food stamps. So uh, I'm trying to keep up with everything that's happening now. It's, it's not easy. <laughs> Yeah, well, tell, tell, is is organic food? It, it's I, I go into some of the grocery stores around me here in New York City, and I was like, okay, well, I can I can pay seventy nine cents for a pound of lemons, or I can pay you know uh, two seventy nine for a pound of lemons, or whatever it is. Uh, and, and the only difference is whether it says organic or not. Uh, what what does your research into all that tell you? I, I've always it strikes me it seems scammy to me, but I haven't done a lot of research into it other than just my gut. Yeah, well, I think your gut is right. Uh, For the most part, there is no reason to buy organic food, Um, particularly, say, something like lemons. A lot of we're a net importer of organic goods. So a lot of the organic food that you see is probably imported from somewhere else. Um, There's no health, environmental or uh, safety benefits to buying organic. In some regards, it's worse for the environment. It requires a lot more natural inputs rather than synthetic ones that work faster. It requires a lot more manual labor. Um, and so there really isn't any reason to purchase organic. It's just a feel-good measure for people who can afford it. But unfortunately, some studies are coming out that show lower-income people will not buy fresh produce because they feel like they have to buy organic because they're afraid of you know, non-organic because of the scare tactics the organic industry has used. And so they won't buy them at all. Um, so it's really uh, self-defeating for trying to get people to eat healthier. And uh, the organic industry has, um, they've got a pretty, uh, they've got some very wealthy executives and uh, some good lobbyists who are trying to convince all of us that, that we need to buy their food when we don't. And it says here under your bio that you've taken on some celebrity chefs. Which ones? What happened? Well, Did you go toe-to-toe with Gordon Ramsay? I want to know. Not yet. Um, he kind of behaves himself politically. I haven't, I haven't seen much from him. All of this started with uh, Tom Colicchio, who I'm sure you I was going to say, is it Colicchio the commie or Batali the, uh, the Marxist? But yeah, go ahead. It's both of them. I'm proudly blocked by both of them on Twitter. Um, and oh, nice. This all started with an article I wrote in the Wall Street Journal and not that, just out of the blue about Tom Colicchio's politics in uh, 2014. And it just really mushroomed uh, from there. But I see he's, he's closing one of his restaurants out there, Craft Bar. I think he should have, as I said, stick to uh, stick to food and cooking and, and not get into politics. So... Um, yeah, he's, he's, what did you say? What did you say about his politics? He's the top chef guy. For those of you listening, he's one of the judges on top chef, which is a show I used to watch before. I just found actually Padma Lakshmi was the one that after a while I just could just couldn't take it anymore. I was like, this is, this woman is likes herself too much. Uh, but, but Tom Kalecki was a a judge there. Oh, she's gone political too. Yeah. Everybody now, this is, this is the fashionable thing to do. Everyone has to get political. So what, what, what did you say about Kalecki's politics though? I'm curious. 
I mean, he's a far lefty. The first article I wrote about him, he was on MSNBC talking about the farm bill and how Republicans wanted to make people starve by taking away their food stamps and school lunch program. And I was really surprised because like you, I watched Top Chef. I was I was actually a fan of Tom Colicchio. I really thought the show was interesting and he did a good job. Um, but he ventured into this Democratic activist political world. And, um, you know, he, he doesn't come across that well. I don't think he's that well informed about what he's talking about. Um, I saw him give a speech. This worked out well. He introduced Hillary Clinton in Pennsylvania the day before the election. Um, and so that didn't really go as planned. But he kind of went on this rant about Ronald Reagan. It's kind of all over the place. Um, but unfortunately, you know, he has a platform. He has an audience. And so, um, you know, I just kind of held his feet to the fire, especially about GMOs. He's an anti-GMO activist as well. So I challenged him on, uh, you know, some of the stuff he was saying about GMOs. And, of course, he never really had What do they claim? Do they have studies that they point to when they say that genetically modified food, what, does it cause higher rates of, of cancer, disease? Or what are the main... The, the anti-GMO crowd says what about them? Well, they really make stuff up. Um, and, you know, there's so much science coming out proving that GMOs are safe. I talk to a lot of farmers who t- tell me how beneficial it is to them uh, and to their farms and to their crops. Um, but this is really a, a movement that started by the organic industry and environmental groups so they could sell more non-GMO organic food. But also the environmental activists are very anti-capitalist, um, anti-Monsanto, who uh, you know is one of the first pioneers with genetically engineered crops. It's really a political movement, um, but unfortunately, it's really stymied some of the progress that we can make uh, in the area of, of genetically engineered modified foods. Um, for example, this month, um, some stores here in the Midwest are going to start selling Arctic apples, and this is a product that um, where the genetics have been tweaked in. A, certain, a few varieties of apples that prevent the apple from bruising and browning. So there's great potential to use this technology to make our food system more sustainable, to make uh, to lessen food waste, um, to you know make your dollar at the grocery store go further because you aren't replacing food that's constantly spoiling. Um, and so it, it, it's got tremendous potential here and around the world. But, of course, the activists, particularly in the Obama administration, wanted to uh, really put a brick on that. And hopefully we'll see a lot more progress now with the Trump administration and Republican Congress. Best best celebrity chef, in your opinion, is who? Um, Ina Garten. She's the only one I like Ina? anymore. Who's that? Ina Garten? Um, she is. Ina Garten is the Barefoot Contessa. Um, oh, she's got great, okay. yeah, Contessa, she, yeah. yeah, she's got some great, just really, I don't want to say simple cookbooks, but, um, you know, very doable recipes. She's got a great way about her. She's the only one I like. I, I don't even watch the celebrity chefs anymore. I think they're just so obnoxious and full of themselves and they don't really even teach anyone to cook. It's just about their image and promoting themselves. All right, Julie Kelly, National Review contributor and leading voice. (laughs) What's up? Did we cover everything? I I can't think of what else we have. Yeah, we got we got through some stuff for sure. Oh, we're gonna have you back. The the Freedom Hut Gauntlet. You're you're just this is just day one. There'll be many other opportunities, Julie. But Julie is a National Review contributor. You can read her latest at nationalreview.com, and uh, we can talk about celebrity chefs more next time. Julie, thank you for calling in. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Uh, We're going to hit a break, team. We'll be right back. 
This is the Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network. The so team uh, tonight. I'll be on America Now, Buck Sexton with America Now uh, Radio across the country, syndicated six to nine. If you don't have the ability to listen on old school radio in your area, which I know a bunch of you don't, just go to AmericanNowRadio.com and it'll you can play it right there. It's also possible in the iHeart app. Although I'm hearing some people have had difficulty finding me in the iHeart app, so I'm gonna have to check that out. Um, just to give you a sense of what we're talking about, the uh, immigration face-off tonight, we'll get into the latest on that. Uh, the oral arguments over Trump's travel ban, that's going to be right at the top of the show. We'll also get into uh, the possible Supreme Court showdown. We're going to hear from Navy SEAL sniper Chris Kyle, of course, of American sniper renown. Uh, his interpreter, uh, known only as codenamed Johnny Walker, uh, he is going to make the case for why we need tougher borders. So that's going to be tonight. Plus, it's Wayne's World's 25th anniversary today. Very exciting stuff. We'll talk a bit about Wayne's World at some point on the show because Wayne's World's amazing. And uh, we've got some other fun guests joining. It's going to be a great time tonight, so uh, do tune in if you can. And you can always uh, play on demand the show if you miss it. You just go to uh, AmericanOutRadio.com. Check it out there. Uh, please... Uh, do give me a listen if you can at the, on the nighttime show. And, of course, continue to download this show. Uh, just go on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, type in Buck Sexton, and you can pick it up right then and there. Yeah, yesterday I think I set some kind of a record for myself. Three hours of TV plus a hit, and then five hours of radio. It's a long, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff for one day. A lot of, a lot of content, a lot of, yeah. So uh, today will be a little less crazy than that. Hopefully tomorrow I'll be able to get, get some rest and come out with uh, my, my full vocal range. It would be nice. I know I sound like Mariah or something. I need my full vocal range. But no, I do not sound like Mariah. You know what I mean. Uh, so, yeah, that's going to be exciting stuff. Team, thank you for joining me today. I believe uh, Chris Salcedo is coming up next year at uh, 2 Eastern. So uh, stay here right here on the Blaze Radio Network. And join me tonight, 6 to 9, AmericanOutRadio.com syndicated Buck Sexton stuff. Until then, shield tie. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.